Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Well, welcome to the show, Cybersecurity America. I'm your host, Joshua Nicholson. Today, we have a great uh, opportunity to interview Josh Stabner. So Josh Stabner is a Chief Information Security Officer at General Atlantic, where he leads the firm's cybersecurity efforts as part of the information technology team. So prior to General Atlantic, Josh was Managing Director and Chief Information Security Officer at Pine River Capital Management, where he established and developed a leading cybersecurity function. Previously, Josh spent 10 years at Ernst & Young, where he led cyber threat management advisory services for, for financial services uh, sector clients, with a focus on threat intelligence, vulnerability identification and remediation, security monitoring and analytics, incident management, and security engineering. In addition, Josh serves as the chairman of the FSISAC Alternative Investors Council and formerly served as a cybersecurity advisory board member for Pace University's uh, Seidenberg School of Computer Science and Information Systems. Josh holds a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in computer science from Dartmouth College, and he is a, uh, a expert who's been in the field for many years. Well, welcome, Josh. Uh, welcome to the show. That was a, it's a rich background you have. Anything I missed? Any anything I should cover? Uh, not on, on the security side of things. Uh, it's it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, you and I got to work together extensively at Young. Uh, when we were there, we got to see the good, the bad, uh, learned a lot, how to deal with a lot of customers, how to do cybersecurity at scale for some of these large corporations. So it was a great experience uh, working with you. And yes, you, you were one of the best managers I had. So. <laughs> now, I, now I owe you a couple of bucks, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, I think, Josh, the first thing I think everyone asks a lot of questions, I know you hear this a lot, is... um is that the journey to CISO, that journey that going from where you and I were were consultants and working our way up in Ernst & Young and, and how you developed into the, the CISO that you are today. So do you want to kind of help us and some of our listeners understand that journey and where are some pointers that they may learn across that way? Because I think at the end, when everybody looks at their cybersecurity program, a lot of time or, or career, they, they really see CISO as that top and they, they always mention that as a goal. But what kind of your thoughts on your personal journey so far? Yeah, I mean, everyone's journey is, is different. Um, and certainly the the route that I took is is not the only way, but I'll, I'll elaborate on on my personal history and and how I ended up where I am today. Uh, you know, when I first started in cybersecurity, or at least studying security in school, there security wasn't a there was no curriculum for security. It was you know uh, when I did my my master's degree, I was working in the PKI lab because cryptography was as close as you could get to security at the time. Um, you know, I had previously done internships in software development. I had done internships as a help desk engineer. Um, and I didn't really enjoy those things, but I knew I enjoyed technology and, and computer science. Um, and security was something that as a hobby, uh, I found really, really interesting. Um, you know, reading various slash dot threads and, um, you know, that, that type of stuff really got me into it. And so when I graduated and I was looking for a job, I actually got very, very lucky in that Ernst & Young had a brand new penetration testing team in New York. Um, and New York is where I'm from, um, New York City area. And I got to join this team of incredibly brilliant pen testers, all at the essentially cutting edge of the pen testing industry. Um, and we kind of got to define what pen testing was and 
how you scoped out projects and how you executed the projects and how you reported the findings to clients. And so for the first several years of, of my career, having that very technical experience um, and developing that security mindset where you start to think like a bad guy um, and try to learn or, or how do you break systems apart and figure out where the vulnerabilities might be and how you can leverage those vulnerabilities to make the system do something it wasn't intended to do. Um, that Developing that mindset really kind of jump-started my, uh, my cyber journey. Um, leveraging that, I was then able to kind of expand into helping with incident response uh, and working on those types of engagements. Again, having that security mindset, really important. Um, and then getting into more of what today we call blue team, um, security analytics, security monitoring, building defensive countermeasures, building security programs, uh, eventually to the point where I was helping clients design their entire security program. And there were a couple of things. First of all, I loved consulting um, and I loved working at, at EY. Uh, but there were a couple of things that, that started to bug me towards the end. Um, one was the travel. Uh, and that was just the most significant part of my uh, decision to, to move out of out of consulting is I uh, put my my two-year-old daughter to bed on a Sunday night and she said, I'll see you Thursday, daddy. And I said, okay, that's a sign from the universe that I got to make some, uh, some life choices here. Um, but the other was when you work with clients as a consultant and you're, and you're building security programs, uh, you don't get to see how those programs look a year later. You don't get to make the tweaks and the fine tuning that turns something good into something great. And I wanted, I wanted a little bit of that. I wanted to have more ownership over what it was that I built. And so combined with my desire to get off the road, I realized I need to find something local. I need to find something stable. Um, and having served the financial services industry as a consultant for so long, I knew that going into a financial services oriented firm would be the best for me, the best fit for me, because I had an understanding of the business. Um, and it's something that I think we hear a lot in cyber circles is that security people need to understand the business better. It's something I didn't fully appreciate until I actually left consulting and joined as a CISO at Pine River that man, if I'm going to protect this hedge fund, I better understand how hedge funds work. Um, and that uh, epiphany, which it's strange to call it an epiphany because for years we've been talking about understanding the business better. Um, but when you're, when you're really faced with it, you have to do it. Um, that, I think, turned me into a better security practitioner. So it was, you know, I think I go back early in my career when I started pen testing, I said developing that security mindset, learning how to think like a bad guy, that was a, a pivotal moment. And then when I became a CISO and learning how to think like the business, learning how the front office operates day in and day out, what's important to them, what's important to the investors, what's important to... Um, you know, the back office and legal and compliance and the regulators. That was the, the second mind mindset that I had to, to develop to become a, a more well-rounded CISO. And so how did you go about developing that? I know we all kind of have different books. I'm, I'm a big John Maxwell fan. I love how to make friends influence people. That means there's just a number of them we could talk to. My favorite is Robert Greene. I love the 48 Laws of Power, Seduction, Human Nature, Mastery. I think that's all great books and really focuses on that as well as there's the, the business side of, um, you know, I feel like some of us, we get to our career in a certain point where it's almost MBA is the next logical assumption, but it, it's not everybody wants to jump to, and it's, it's highly expensive to do that. And so I guess what helped you bridge the business gap from the technology gap to the business gap, obviously EMY prepared us a lot on the financial side, but there's still, I'm assuming 
a, a, a good up ramp of learning you had to do to, to really learn how the business functions. Would, would that assumption be correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, EY definitely prepared me for that in, in a couple of different ways. Um, one, when you're, when you reach a certain level at a consulting firm, you're, you're working with clients and you're being more strategic, right? You're not just tactically executing projects. Mm-hmm. You're helping them figure out which projects make the most sense. Um, and so you, you develop a little bit of that strategic mindset uh, when you work with your clients. You're also, you're running a book of business, right? You're not just this cybersecurity consultant who helps companies get more secure out of the goodness of your heart, right? This is, it's a business. And as a consultant, you're, especially as a senior manager or partner at that level, you're, you're running a book of business. So you have to learn how to run that for yourself. Um, but when I moved to Pine River and subsequently at General Atlantic, um, you start to realize that, I mean, one, these businesses are very, very different from one another. A bank or an investment bank is very different from a hedge fund or a private equity firm. Um, and so I had to take on a little bit more deliberate learning. I tend to be a very um, technical thinker. And so I found technical books. Um, I think the most, the best book that I found on the topic at the time was called uh, Capital Markets for Quantitative Professionals. And it goes through the various technical systems that run a sell side and buy side um, firm. Right. And once I kind of understood, okay, what is, what do the exchanges do? What does an order management system do? Um, you know, portfolio management and, and how are trades executed and um, what does fund accounting look like and, and all that kind of um, underlying technology that helps these, these businesses run. Uh, the next thing I did was I summarized it. Um, I knew I would have to hire people to help build the security program. And I knew those people would have to understand the business as well. But I couldn't expect everyone to read that same book and get the same thing out of it. And so what I did was I wrote this little four or five page summary of here's how this works. You cliffed it. Um, and one of the one of the things I did that I'm, I I think actually worked really well was in that document I defined a lot of terms. So it became almost like a guide for the lingo that's used in the front office at a hedge fund or at a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I would hire people, I would give them that document. I would say, here, read this. And then when you go into a meeting, you're not going to wonder what people are talking about. You're going to know because you've had at least a little bit of background about how much it works. Um, so I think definitely reading, but also writing it down and trying to teach others helps me to learn it and understand it better and helps me to figure out where my personal shortcomings are so I can work on those. Yeah, I find that's common. And most people like to mentor. We like to teach at the same time. And mentoring, I think, is just an extension of that. It's a more holistic approach to to teaching. But I think, yeah, it, over the years, I've had to learn to extend my repertoire of analogies when you when you try to explain what's happening. This is well, this is like this or, you know, a, a threat hunting is. You know, let's let's use the analogy of security operations center. It's the nine one one. Everything comes into the sock, and you know, so dog barking, that kind of stuff. Some triage has to occur from there. And and by the way, when if there's an event, you dispatch, and there's something that has to happen. And it's an response guy takes over, and they're, they're like the detectives. But threat hunting is more like uh, the DEA comes into an area, and they're going to stake out the wharfs because they think crime is in that area. So they have the cameras and they have a theory. They have a theory that they're going to go after. And so sometimes people confuse these different terms and and so, so forth. So you had to you had to really develop an analogy uh, for that. And I'm assuming you have to do that as well, because some of these concepts are so complicated. How does a financial how, how does a board member understand what's happening, especially with these new SEC changes? How do they understand what you're telling them is even valid? In, in yeah, it's, it, you're, you're exactly right. It's And it's actually another thing that working so long at a place like EY had, had prepared me for. Um, it's important to be able to know, as I mentioned, you got to know the business of the company that you're protecting, but you also have to know how to speak 
to those business people. Um, and so in, in cyber, we talk a lot about the board and how do you communicate to the board and how do you get someone who's only concerned about dollars and cents to respond to cybersecurity threats or your requests for budget or uh, any topic that you, you need to, to bring up at that level. Um, and so working at a place like EY where you're constantly writing presentations for very, very senior level folks, you're giving presentations to senior level folks, it's great practice for the day that you finally become a CISO and that becomes your job. That becomes not a not a once or twice a year thing. That becomes a once a month or several times a week um, exercise. Uh, analogies are great. Um, I find that when you can speak in um, when when you can speak with with comparative language uh, and and draw you know a, analogies or comparisons to. Uh, Things that people understand, whether it's it's sports or you know popular science or movies or or whatever, um, that helps. Um, but again, putting things in business terms helps. And this is where I think, if I'm looking at what is the future of of cybersecurity, um, I think I, I would I would guess there's going to be a lot more um, a lot more research and focus on quantitative risk. Uh, I know there's there's a lot of that now. There are a lot of different tools and products in the market that do risk quantification. Um, the Doug Hubbard books are great when you wanna learn about how to measure things and how to express risk in financial terms. Um, but I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, I think there's a lot of Still uncertainty about the whole process and how the math works, and if the not not how the math works, but if the inputs, the numbers that you're collecting, the the they really represent the the truth. Obviously, the models work, right? A a Monte Carlo simulation is a Monte Carlo simulation that right. that works. I'm not saying the math doesn't work, but am I putting the right inputs in? Um, have I collected enough data? Have I run the simulation enough times? Um, those types of things we're gonna it's going to evolve and we're going to start to see, I would hope CISOs have more of that business lens and less of that technical lens. And I think now there's a bit of a divide between the CISOs at the really, really big public companies that have, that are already there, that are already in the room with the board, um, you know, at that top level versus CISOs at much smaller Companies who are still very technical, still very zeros and ones, um, you know, that that whole shift will continue happening. And you'll see uh, a lot more talk about risk uh, in, in quantitative terms. Yeah, that's, that's what business people understand. They understand dollars and cents. Yeah, I think what helped me the most to uh, kind of understand it was when I spent two years as a group information security officer at Wells Fargo. And so I had a number of assets from the consumer lending division. So we had loans, mortgage, uh, loans, mortgages, credit cards, uh, auto loans was one of the biggest. And so you had to do these security assessments on it. And the way you quantified it to group risk officers were in risk terms. At the But the entire time, the risk quantification scoring mechanism was really blown out. Sometimes it would say there's $25 million worth of risk there. Well, really, we've never really seen it go up to that. Cyber events are kind of unpredictable in, in some cases. And so it was really hard to to quantify that kind of impact. And especially when you were talking about patching things and and, and the, the vulnerability to the system and how much risk it is to be able to, they think you could just quantify anything as if today you're having $500,000 of risk tomorrow. It's one six hundred. Well, I really don't want it to go up. What's the problem? I, it's really hard to define that from a, an operational perspective. And like you were saying, the people who can bridge the gap from being a technical uh, level person like myself, who started off incident response, network engineer, and so forth, along the line, you have to figure, how do I develop the business acumen or do I want to split? There should be two tracks, right? Do you want to be the senior technical person that's always hands-on IR on the firewalls? 
or do you really want your career now to go to the next level and you want to learn the business side of this and you want to develop into a true CISO? Like like you're saying, at the smaller, less mature levels, I think it's still still technical. And technical people think CISO just means you're the head guy that makes all the decisions. And so the toughest security problems come to the CISO. But when you're in big organizations by financial institutions, its maturity demands a completely different level of engagement and development of cybersecurity that the smaller, more technical people are just never really going to understand. And so how do you get into that pipeline to, to do that kind of work? I mean, does that make sense? Sure. Um, the you got to want to do it. Uh, I think the a terrible mistake that that a lot of folks in security make is that they think the CISO is the only path upwards, um, and that's not. It's just not true. It, it may have been true, you know, fifteen years ago, um, but the roles available in cybersecurity today are so diverse um, and and so vast that it's not the only way to grow your career. Uh, if you're a very, very technical person and you enjoy being technical, um, there's so much need for sharp security engineers who help to build software, who help in you know, the design of hardware. Um, we work in our, you know, the, the companies that produce our operating systems and our browsers. And I mean, we need security people involved in, in all of those things. And it's okay to speak zeros and ones. And by the way, I'm not just saying this from a, a you know, um, emotional perspective, it from a career growth, financial growth, like, you can make a lot of money as a security engineer who focuses on just the, the security within an operating system, right? You don't have to run a cyber program. You don't have to be the CISO. You don't have to, um, you don't even have to manage people. You can have a very good, long, successful, financially um, good career as an engineer. Um, but if you want, to be a CISO because you like the political aspects, the business aspects, the economic aspects, um, then I would say dive in, right? Talk to whoever your, your uh, boss is and ask her or him, can I run a program? Can I take over vulnerability management? Right? Or what do I need to do to get to the point where I can take over vulnerability management? Right? I, I understand I'm too junior today, but in 18 months, I'd love to own our secure culture initiatives. I'd love to own our third-party risk or whatever the, the segment of, of security is. Um, right. talk, to, talk to your chain of command and... and one, make them clear about your ambitions. No one's going to manage your career better than you. Um, so make sure that if you're thinking about something, your chain of command knows it. Um, they're going to support you. And if they're not supporting you, you got to find a, a, a different chain of command that will. And maybe that's at a different company. Uh, two, do it piecemeal, right? Realize that to be a CISO, you have to understand all the domains in security, or you have to know how to manage people who understand those domains. You've got to understand how to manage up. You've got to understand how to um, talk to the business. You've got to understand uh, vendors and, and contracts and insurance policies and all these things that when you're a young pen tester or incident responder or whatnot, you don't think about. Feel that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but find a, find that mentor let them know your ambitions um, and then hold them accountable, right? The, the every, every, every three months, check in with them, right? How, how am I doing? Am I on the right track? Right. What can I change? 
And I think there's a difference. Some people think their boss needs to be their mentor or their mentor needs to be their boss. And and I, I find that the roles are separate. I think there's a lot of people I feel have mentored me over the years. You're one of them. And, you know, that doesn't mean that person, that mentor is your boss. I mean, my direct uh, supervisor, I report to the chief operating officer. So that I, I think a tremendous leader, but at the same time, I wouldn't view as a complete mentor. But there's other people that don't have to be in your chain of command. I think the younger generation feels that your direct supervisor has to be a mentor. But if you're not getting mentorship from your leadership, there's other people in the industry that are, are either horizontal or in, in other companies that can help provide some of that mentorship, I guess. Yeah, uh, I agree 100%. And in fact, you know, again, thinking back to my my consulting days, I had clients who were who were mentors. Um, I had I had clients who I wanted to emulate, they, they probably didn't even know that I looked at them as a mentor. <laughs> um, but, but the best mentors are the ones where there's this mutual uh, agreement, right? There's a, an established relationship. You both know, hey, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. It doesn't have to be your boss. It can be. Uh, and, you know, I've, Look, the, the thing I'm most proud of in my whole career is the, is the number of people that have worked for me that are now CISOs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's because we had a mutual understanding. They wanted to grow. I wanted to help them to grow. Um, and it's not everyone that's ever worked for me that's gotten to that point. But the ones that, the ones that wanted it, I was there for them. The, if, if, you or whoever's listening to this, you have that the same similar ambitions. Make them known. Make it. No one's. No one can read your mind. Um, and a good boss or a good CISO is not going to assume that everyone wants to be where they are, yeah. um, because they don't. So, like I said, some people want they they can grow into technical roles. Well, I mean, look at my role. I I was a CISO before coming to EMY, but at but in my career in the last several years, I've been offered several CISO roles. I turned them down because I like being in the consulting managed services side. Like I have three hundred customers right now that I have to manage, so I'm on fifteen to seventeen strategic calls throughout the month. I know what cybersecurity is working at some of the biggest companies in the world. That- How do you have time to do a podcast? <laughs> because it's in the evening most of the time and and uh, it's do it's talking about the exact same thing that we do all day long so um but it gets me some really insight some good insight how is microsoft defender for instance working when you first deploy it and how how are the splunk instances what you're seeing at at, at, at different use cases and different customer sets uh, it is a fascinating insight and it makes it really dynamic now when i was working in industry Yes, you had a great insight to seeing a program development over the time period, like you were talking about. I thought it was, it's a phenomenal insight you see into something. You miss that when you're in consulting. But at the same time, you get to see so many other things and aspects of their programs and so forth that kind of, it kind of makes up for it. So for me, being a, a, a VP in professional services, where I'm running a managed service practice, as well as a, um, a service delivery practice, I think it gives a, a good excitement level because I have highly technical people working for me. Uh, the challenges are different, something that can come up with another client that, that didn't come up in an, um, previously. I've seen attacks, for instance, on some of our Azure instances that our customers needed assistance on. And it, it, that was like state-of-the-art stuff. And so I, it was just really exciting to be a part of that. And so, like you were saying, not everybody is, can, can I go back to the industry and accept a CISO role? Absolutely. But it just, in in my case, seems a little boring because um, that's one client, right? And if things aren't moving so well in that one client, you're not making a huge change. I think the pace could probably slow down. And sometimes you feel that you're not making such a great contribution. Like at Wells Fargo, you didn't feel like you were driving systemic change. You felt like you were a cog in the wheel of 100, what is it, 225,000 employees, uh, at Wells Fargo. So you just felt like a cog in the wheel, so to speak. Met a lot of great people, was able to do a lot of things. But uh, I think some of our, our people get dis- disheartened when they think about the CISO role. They finally get into it and they see how much paperwork it could be in many cases, how many dealing with audit findings, 
reporting up is a whole new skill. You used to think just the facts matter. It, it's not. It's the way you position it and what does this mean and what's the greater context um, and all that stuff, right? I, I think everything you said I, I, it is true, but there's there's also, I think you have to consider the company that you join um, as a CISO. Um, now, obviously, if you're working at a big bank like a Wells Fargo, for example, uh, you could be on the on the security team and you could be promoted up the ranks to CISO one day. Um, that happens and that's great. You know the company, you know the culture. Um, you know, for me, there was a lot of that bureaucratic stuff that, as you said, that's it's not super appealing. Um, and I wanted, when I found my first CISO role, um, I wanted it to be at a very small company. And, you know, I knew I loved financial markets. I find this stuff fascinating. Um, and so, you know, a hedge fund seemed like a good fit. It was a small company, 400 employees. Um, you know, they had a, a lot of money under management that, you know, 16 billion under management at the time. But I was the first CISO for them. And that was my first CISO role. Wow. And so I got to define, you know, I essentially everything. Um, you know, I had a great relationship with the the founder CEO and, and we worked together along with my boss, our CIO. And um, we built that, that program right-sized for that firm. Um, and for a first-time CISO, that was great because I wasn't diving into the deep end. Um, I wasn't, you know, drowning. I was being deliberate about the way um, we built the program. And that really prepared me for coming here to General Atlantic, which is a significantly bigger uh, organization, still a buy-side firm. Um, it's We're in growth equity. We're not a hedge fund, but we're still a buy-side asset manager. Um, and, and having that experience at Pine River really prepared me for this. And if one day I were to ever move on from GA, which I'm not looking to do, but I really do love it here. I love the people and I love the culture. Um, but having kind of stepped up to that next level, I feel like I could go to a bigger firm, thousands of employees and, and you know, it's different. Um, and so one of the things to consider as you're looking at where you want to grow is the company, the culture. Uh, believe me, it was, it was culture shock going from EY, which had 100,000 employees to a company that had 400 employees. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, it was definitely a shock. I remember uh, when I onboarded there I, I clicked on something on the internet and all of a sudden it was in german and then it was in polish and then it was like i had to close everything out i was in too many different intranets it was all over the place finding data was uh interesting i would tell you it felt like a finishing school and that's why i purposely felt going into consulting was the right method i mean if you're in industry your entire career there's just this whole aspect of client management and decision enablement and all these terms that you use in consulting that drive things forward that you're never really exposed to. Uh, I remember that we had some of the manager training in which um, they actually had you match up with a couple of different people. And you, you sat there and you, your job was, I think there was three or four different pods and our job was to come up with a project and then put the presentation together and then present it to three or four partners that are sitting around the table. And I remember we did that and we had, I had a, a person on my left, the EMY consultant on my right, and all of a sudden, all three partners start yelling and screaming at us at the top of their lung, telling us that the, the paper's wrong, this doesn't meet our objectives, just going irate, right? And now this was to, to prepare us in the event that this occurs and to train us in the event that this occurs with uh, customers as part of dispute resolution, right? But they don't tell you that they're going to start yelling at you, right? And so the two consultants on both my side are like crapping themselves. I have no, no idea what to do. Didn't expect to be yelled at. Um, they're they're kind of new. 
Aura's already a sergeant in the Marines, so you can't yell at me any more than or, or more than that. But I thought it was really good training on how to communicate, even in a dispute resolution manner. And then several months later, I was I did a security assessment. You know the, who the client was. I won't say that on the podcast. But um, in New York City, did a security assessment, handed him the report, and the manager. This was at a, a, at a an Asian bank. And the manager took the report and then threw it across the, the desk. It hit me in the face and, and fell down in front of me. And, of course, it was a real shock to all of us. But we had this dispute resolution training. We knew how to handle ourselves. We knew how to communicate and de-escalate. And it just showed the whole reasoning for the training in the first place in the event that this occurs, right? Uh, they really don't teach you that in other companies you go work at wells fargo they don't teach you that kind of stuff maybe in their call center or something like that but i think the experiences of that were uh were tremendous i think the ability to summarize uh what what it is a problem like what is the objectives what's the methodology we plan to use here what's the desired outcome this is how we got to this answer i think a lot of that gets missed in industry where they try to explain something that from a business case perspective and they just say hey we need to replace the proxy server i need four hundred thousand dollars and that's really it Right. And they don't put it in any other kind of language or benefit or anything for like a CIO to go, okay, I see the cost benefit ratio here. Um, they don't really kind of structure it in that manner. And I think if more people did, if they learned that those type of skill sets, that their career would naturally gravitate further into the CISO, add some business training into that, and a technical person could make it to to the ranks. I mean, what are you what are your thoughts? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you know, there's you have to be able to speak like an economist, mm-hmm. right? These are the investments we're making. This is the return on the investment that we're expecting to get. Uh, long-term horizons. What's the cost of the technical debt if we keep it over time? Um, if you put, every, you got to put everything into those those cost terms. And by the way, that it's it's different from accounting, which you're not just adding up numbers and and giving a budget, right? That's that's important too. Um, but having that strategic mindset uh, and being able to explain, like you said, the why I'm taking on this $50,000 or $500,000 project because it reduces our risk. It reduces our exposure by $2 million. My return is, is one and a half million. That, that language is very, very powerful. Now it's one thing to say that it's one thing to, do back of the envelope or, or bar napkin math. And it's another to really do the analysis. I think where we're having shortcomings as an industry right now is, is in the real analysis. And that's why I was going back to the quantification becoming more important in the future of, of how we build and design cybersecurity programs. Um, uh, look, we're at we're at a point now where the big cyber um, the big insurers are willing to write policies. That means they feel like they can really handle or understand the risk. They they can calculate the risk, um, and so if they can calculate it, eventually we should be able to do it on our own and and start making strategic decisions based on those calculations. And that's a really good point. I mean. They- and I heard that cyber insurance has morphed tremendously. Like it's not even the same industry as of two years ago, mostly because of all these ransomware breaches and all the payouts and all the interruption to the supply chain and so forth. But have you noticed a real shift in cyber insurance and what are the requirements to actually be covered uh, in some of these breaches and so forth? Yeah. I mean, dramatic shifts over the last five years, um, and and shifts in in the way we understand it, to, we meaning the the community of security practitioners, um, the way we understand these policies. Because when when cyber insurance first uh, was being discussed, there were all kinds of gotchas that people were worried about. Oh, if I get attacked by Russia, that'll be an act of war, and insurance policies don't cover act of and now there's just so much more clarity on what's covered and what's not covered. Um, extra extra riders for things like ransomware. 
the the industry has matured dramatically um, over the last couple of years. And I think that's because the insurance companies are more comfortable underwriting these policies now. Um, it means they feel like they have a handle on how to calculate the risk. Um, and five years ago, it's totally understandable that they didn't have a handle because there was no way to know the average cost of a breach because that was only voluntarily reported. And there was no way to know the likelihood that company X will get breached over company Y. Um, and so they have done a lot of work, obviously for a big payout in the end, but they have done a lot of work to mature the industry. Um, and I think we'll start to benefit from that, not just because now we feel more comfortable buying policies and, and my my personal opinion on cyber insurance has changed over that time where I'm now pro insurance. Um, but we'll start to benefit from it outside of the insurance landscape. We'll be able to use the same actuarial techniques to make decisions. What should I do a application security initiative this year or should I do an identity and access management initiative? I've only got X number of dollars in the budgets. I, I probably can only do one. Um, and man, having having that that return on investment flushed out would really help make that decision, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you have to deal with all the time is that constraint of the budget. So, so what would you recommend for the technical people, or let's say the business level folks who want to be a CISO? but uh, they would feel completely outgunned. Their technical team would use terms they don't understand. I, I would assume there is some technical rapid training you would see where a, someone with a business degree would be able to pick up enough cyber terms to give some kind of overview of what these technical teams are saying. Because I can imagine, you know, I'm I'm technical, so I, I don't have the problem, but I can imagine not being and sitting there and having these requests come up for these solutions and these managed services or whether it's in-house or whatever it is and trying to make a decision and give governance and not have any clue really what that does from a technology perspective. So where is that security manager type training you think could rapidly advance someone's career? Oh, I don't know who, who offers that training. Um, obviously there are a whole host of certifications that mm. are security focused that, folks can study for and take exams for, you know, you've got all the ISC squared certs, the SANS certs, et cetera. Um, but I'll, I'll go back to something I said earlier, which is it kind of depends on the company and the company culture, um, the company size. It's very conceivable that there are companies large enough where the CISO doesn't have to be a security practitioner. Um, they just have to be a good manager. They have to know how to hire the right people. They have to know how to run big programs and big budgets. And then the opposite of that is when you get to a smaller company where, you know, your security team is one or two people or, you know, sub 50 people. Uh, in that in that case, the, the technical chops are going to be a lot more important um, because, that person's not going to be able to abstract themselves from all the different projects that are going on and and, and all that, right? Whereas at a, at a bigger company with a different culture, um, perhaps they can. Um, there are a lot of firms in, smaller firms in the financial services industry, um, when you're talking about, you know, tiny asset managers, credit unions, things like that, where the CIO and the CISO are the same person. Yeah. Um, if you remember too, we were on a, an account uh, together in California and we did this deliverable in which the client said, you know, I don't like the idea of red, green. Uh, we had red, yellow, and green for, for the yeah. markings. I mean, even low. Because <laughs> they had a lot of red right on the paper. And so can you make it a shade of blue, if you recall? And I didn't understand that. It didn't make sense to me. And then I go home. And my nine-year-old comes home and goes, brings me that piece of paper and he goes, I said, how, how was school today? He says, great, dad, no reds. And so that's what the psychology was, is that he had 
red on the highs and didn't want that showing up on on the paper and and how much of that kind of psychology plays into decision making in some cases the way you position a solution to something right as a CISO you're dealing with several different stakeholders in several different areas and they have different agendas and they have different projects and they have different budgets and I guess it's the skill of how do you weave that in, in between them all and you weave them together into some cohesive message to say this is what I want to do for you and I want to move that 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 kind of program forward one of the things that um I interviewed uh, Bruce Schneider um I think I said his last name right Schneider and, yep. and uh, yesterday and just had a phenomenal chat he had one of these books he called the hacker mindset and he talked about how you had um taxonomy of a tax person whose job is a tax avoidance strategy it's to Hack the code system, essentially, that it, where you're not going to pay taxes. That's your job to do that. Find loopholes. That's hacking in the system. And so just to think of that in everyday life of of just having that mindset. And I think you were talking about that earlier. I wrote myself a note about it. Where you're talking about developing that mindset. It's not about the book of knowledge you remember. Like, what's all the hashing algorithms that you can use? SHA-256 to MD5 to all that. That's not where the the, the rubber meets the road. It's more the analytical skills on how to um, formulate that into a business strategy, contextualize that, and be able to make decisions for for the business that that really there was a gulf between the two before. I mean, is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it totally resonates. It, it's exactly what I had in mind earlier when I was talking about having a security mindset or being able to think like the bad guy. Um, that it's a blessing and a curse. Right. It, it really helps me with my career. But, man, I can't go into a, an airport and, and stand in that TSA line and not think to myself, I didn't want to stand in this line. How might I go about, you know, getting past here? Like you, you're just constantly in that. How can I break the system mindset? Right. Um, but it's important that it's important to do that when you're talking about technology systems, deploying especially large, complex systems. Um, and if I think about, you know, General Atlantic here, we have a couple of really, really big platforms that help to run our business. There's a fund accounting platform, a treasury platform, uh, portfolio management, and, and all that stuff. Um, man, if, if I broke into the environment and I wanted to exploit some vulnerabilities, how would I find them? How could I leverage them to do bad things. What are those bad things? Sometimes the bad thing is not always just transferring money from one bank account to another. Sometimes it's deploying malware. Sometimes it's uh, observing and waiting. Sometimes it's doing something to reputationally harm. Um, sometimes it's industrial espionage. Um, but you have to be able to think like a bad guy and many different kinds of bad guys are motivated by many, many different things, uh, motivated by profit, motivated by activism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it, you just, it, and this is not a CISO versus non-CISO thing. This is a, I think every security practitioner has to have a little bit of that mindset. Yeah. Um, whether you're designing systems or pen testing or you're blue teaming or red teaming, so it's the mindset. I don't, I don't know if you remember, this is one of a couple of times at EMY they get escalated to you because I started some kind of trouble. But it was another client down in uh, on Wall Street where I was working with them for about five weeks, you know, because you did my, my write-up on it. And I didn't want to get the temporary badge to go into the building. So because it was a long line. So what I would do is they had two guards by the elevator. They had the guard by the front door. And I would take the temporary badge and I made friends with all the guards. You know, I was like, hey, how of course you, you did <laughs> every day. Hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you. you. know, And so they saw the face. But I would go by to the front gate and then just circle around and go to the elevator. So it looked like I was actually coming from the security gate. But I wasn't. I was going on the elevator. So for three days, the client goes, how, how are you getting up here? And I told him how I was going through a temporary badge and uh, it should never have been allowed. But at the same time, they said, go down and get a permanent badge in the security department because you're going to be here for four weeks before going uh, to another city as part of phase two of the project. So I went down there and this lady just rudely asked me to fill out this form and put my social security number on it. 
And I said, well, can you tell me what are you going to do with it afterward? And she was just really indignant with me. And she was just, just write it down, sir. We'll throw it away. When I had a security mindset, I'm not writing my social security number on a piece of paper here so you could throw it in the garbage. Real, real New Yorker attitude, right? It doesn't have time for anything type thing. And uh, so I, I, said, I take offense to that, by the way. I know you do. <laughs> I spent enough time in New York and my family's from it. So I feel I, I, uh, I have some leeway. But I told him, well, never mind. I'm only here for two weeks. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get the badge. And and I left. And apparently it got escalated all the way up because no one's ever refused to give their social for a badge before on the program and got escalated all the way to an EMY partner. Uh apparently it broke a process that the a compliance process that they never knew uh could have existed. So I was fixing things on day one. <laughs> my badge right but it was the mindset that i discovered this whole broken process they they had a great benefit from it just because i didn't want to be put at risk from her taking my social security number and throw it in the garbage can on the on the piece of paper and uh i remember you were saying it, when when the partner got called and everything is like josh it's one way to get yourself known but that's not the way i was hoping the, that this contract was going to go right and and I think that's the kind of the mindset you're talking about is where push the envelope. Is this supposed to happen? Um, you're just kind of used to to trying to think on sit on a system level. Everything is a system has an input. It's got an output, and some something happens in the middle, right? And um, yeah, it's the I, I think one one thing that's important, another that I learned as I grew in my career was that processes are systems too. And when you when I started my career in pen testing, um, we were breaking technical systems, online banking websites and, um, you know, HR systems and, and things like that. Right. Um, now there's as much vulnerability in the process as there is in the technology. Um, and at the CISO level, you have to be able to think that way. Um, is part of understanding the business is understanding the business processes. Um, I mean, there's major platforms and then there's a lot of significant stuff that gets done in Excel. <laughs> right. I, I heard once Excel is the, is the second best tool for everything. Um, and it, it really is. It's, and if you don't know the process, um, it's hard to affect change or to, or to close those gaps um i definitely recommend excel power advanced training like if you really know how to write the formulas i've seen some wizardry in in excel so oh yeah there's cool stuff you can do um but exactly. now you see now now you're you're going back to the technology you're going back to the the software no you gotta think about the process that surrounds what went in there what comes out of there um you know, BEC, which is like one of the most common common cyber threats that we talk about, ultimately is a process vulnerability, right? You you receive an email from a malicious actor who says, hey, we want you to pay this invoice, but the wire instructions have changed. Yeah. And the process for how new wire instructions get into your treasury platform, that's where the vulnerability lives, right? Because Treasury platform has to be able to accept wire changes that that happens from time to time. And vendors have to be able to change their bank accounts when they send you invoices. That happens from time to time. So it's the process when you receive that email and execute the requested change without having four eyes on it, without calling back the vendor using a different communication channel to say, hey, did you really mean this? Um, Without doing that additional verification, that's where the vulnerability lives. And so if you're going to be an information security person, it's, it, you have to look at the processes too. Processes are systems as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I had that at um, at a financial client. This was, man, this was years ago. We had ACH fraud. And the fraud, we would put multi-factor in front of it. One was for auth authentication, and then the other one was for wire release. Uh, so initiation and release. And we continue to have ACH fraud. Thought it was a technology problem. 
did an application pen test, found out, yes, we have some application issues. We don't think that's what's occurring. Went down to the wire transfer department and said, I want to see, you know, the ACH, put put together ACH in the wire transfer. I want, I want to see you do it. Lady takes out her uh, token. She had RSA token, username, password, does the wire initiation, and then puts that in the drawer and picks out another token and does the authorization right there on the same computer, which the process said to do it on separate computers. It's a separate person. But the other person was on vacation. So she had both credentials and both tokens on the same PC. So technologically, I had the system locked down. I thought we had two approvers or two different systems. There's, you know, and because she broke down the process there, the entire security collapsed and the attacker was on her machine. She had one compromised machine was hers. And so they, they got grabbed both tokens. And so how much money went out the door because of that? So that's kind of what you're saying is that. There's a technology aspect to the security of this, but then there's a process on how you use the technology and what may be some of those vulnerabilities that um, you really can only be fixed with the mindset of walking through it versus a scanner or something technical. Is that is that right. kind of what you're leading to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think criminals can be some of the most advanced thing. If you've seen any of the Netflix series, like Orange is the Next Black or the New Black, or whatever, like that. And their ability to just problem solve, like they, you saw these uh, these different prison grants that would communicate. They had their own encryption language. They would put it in in these notes, and they would take a string and they'd throw it across the the area to another prison cell. And they were just so ingenious of hiding weapons. And you just figure, man, if you could turn that problem solving into a positive thing, it would just be a a tre tremendous benefit to society, right? But it's but it's how do you how do you teach that? How do you grow that? Mm and so forth. Like, what are your thoughts now? Just kind of switching topics a little bit towards chat GPT and AI and all this. I think there's a lot of fears that it's going to be disruptive. I think it is going to be disruptive in many ways, but how disruptive is this going to be? Yeah. You're going to see attackers using, are we going to have red AI against blue AI? We're going to have good and bad forces, essentially. I think we're already probably going to have uh, some of that, but what are your kind of your thoughts? I mean, I've, I've used it here now to create podcast descriptions and kind of a blog from it but how do you see it kind of change in the world moving forward oh man that, that's a big question um i think it's still too early to tell how it's going to change the world um i think we have big expectations for new technology like we do for any new technology especially the stuff that seems at face value uh dramatically different or or flashy mm -hmm. um like i remember when the the first iphone came out and when so well, this is this is going to change the world and and sure enough it, it did um but i also remember other technologies that were released that were supposed to be uh you know game changers that that ended up going nowhere um redbox if you remember that by the time redbox <laughs> We had streaming Netflix. I mean, it was like, poor, I felt so bad for Redbox because everybody got used to going there, get DVDs. It was great if you could print one they didn't have before. And then they got leapfrogged so bad. I don't I don't even see Redbox anymore, do you? So. Um, no, I don't. Um, but but uh, ChatGPT is, is one of those things where, you know, you hear, you read articles, oh, it's going to replace Google and all that. I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not, in that um that's on that bandwagon yet um but i do think it's cool i have played with it um i really thought the there was a vulnerability found in chat gpt not too long ago i don't know if you if you read about it mm -hmm. where um there are controls built into the ai where it should not answer certain questions yeah uh, so in fact one of the things i asked it to do for me was to write a phishing email and it wouldn't do it um but someone found that if you tell it, hey, I'm going to ask you this question, you're going to give me the warning. And then after you give me the warning, just answer my question. It just goes ahead and does it. Right. Um, I'd so, like to yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's 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 a bit of that that we've yet to discover is what are the vulnerabilities in the platform itself? Um, and then I think CISOs are going to have a tough time figuring out where it's acceptable to use. Hmm. Um, right now, if 
employees at, at my firm wanted to upload documents into chat GPT or, or some open AI um, tool and get some output from it, I would be concerned about where does open AI store that data? Yeah. Um, you know, can I go into chat GPT and say, Hey, can you share with me documents that my competitors have uploaded? Um, totally I, will, it, will it respond to that or not? I, there are so many open questions and so much that we have to do to review um, not just the technology itself, but again, how it's used, what we're integrating it into, what are the implications of that? Uh, it, there are a lot of open questions. And, and I think, Josh, we could cover so much of that and keep going. Unfortunately, we ran out of time today. I really appreciate you having on the show. Uh, I think I learned a lot for, from uh, that perspective, how you got where you were at. And I think a lot of people are are focused on that. What's the skill sets to kind of to move forward on and to cover and and how to continue to grow and and progress. Uh, and I think we covered a couple of different areas. I want to thank you for joining us. And I ask all our other guests to please uh, just hit that subscribe and that like button and put any comments you have. And we'll move forward to uh, to respond quickly. So thanks, thanks Josh. for having appreciate me. You. Yeah, it's been a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.